last month, the WHO dropped the first good news in a while. COVID cases around the world had decreased by 50%, mostly in countries that were hit the hardest, such as the US, UK, and South Africa. But what does this mean exactly? To figure out if we're jumping the gun by thinking that this is a cause for celebration, what the exact month is that will bring us closer to a normal life, and how does the fact that rich countries are hoarding the vaccine actually risk of making the vaccines that we have ineffective, I have the great honor to be joined by Dr. Ashish Jha. He is the Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health and one of the most important voices on COVID-19 since the very start of the pandemic. This is The Dive, a show born out of the Harvard Kennedy School that brings you the world's leading experts to explain the news super simply. And I'm your host, Zoya Soroy. I know and I really appreciate, we all appreciate that you have a very busy schedule and you took time for us. So um, I want to start by thanking you very much. Um, We are very honored to have you here. Um, As we see Corona cases falling in places around the world. There is some good news, some sparks of hope. We're seeing cases falling, hospitalizations down uh, nearly 50% in the last month. There's certainly some optimism that people are feeling. Uh, Should we be cautious about this optimism or are we on a good path? So can I say both? We are on a good path, but we should still be cautious. Um, It is a global pandemic. It's not over. Uh, We have many challenges ahead of us. But that all said, we should be very optimistic that we are heading in the right direction. And if we do things smartly and well, this pandemic will come to an end and it will come to an end sooner rather than later. And what is your prediction month-wise when we can expect a significantly better situation? So in the United States, um, I think this summer is going to be terrific. This summer is going to feel for a majority of Americans like a very close to normal summer. Not 100%. There will be things that will be different. And um, outside of the United States, I'm less optimistic. But within the United States, certainly every adult who wants a vaccine will have been vaccinated. I think many children by later part of the summer will be vaccinated. Infection rates should be very, very, very low. And I think getting together with friends, going out to dinners, uh, socializing will largely be safe as long as you're with people who've been vaccinated. There may be communities where vaccination rates are low, mostly out of hesitancy, and those places will see outbreaks and will still have some challenges. So I don't want to oversell it. Mm -hmm. But July should be a really good month and August should be even better. And so this positive um, progress that we're seeing is all due to the vaccines. It's due to three things. Um, Better weather. So there is a seasonality to this virus. And so the better weather is, I think, making a difference. 
Uh, second is population immunity from infection. You know, we have probably had between 25 and 30 percent of Americans have already gotten infected from this virus. So even without vaccines, there's a lot of people who've been infected. There's a lot of immunity in the community. Um, but of course, the big, big, big factor here is vaccines. Uh, we have now in the U.S. three vaccines authorized. They are all really terrific. And they all uh, very, very likely reduce transmission. They protect people against severe illness. And we are vaccinating two plus million people a day right now. And I would not be surprised if by the end of March, we're vaccinating three million people a day or even more. Mm -hmm. And those who who have uh, gotten vaccinated, who will get vaccinated, can they go out and behave normally? Um, does the vaccine mean that you're also protected against carrying the virus and not only um, against the risk of being hospitalized? So here's what we know. I think two people who have both been vaccinated can absolutely safely get together in a way that is normal. That would have been normal in 2019. I think two people who've been vaccinated can get together and have a meal together. They can uh, spend time together. So I think uh, vaccinated people can do that. I think the, the not, when vaccinated people are interacting with non-vaccinated people, there's a bit more complexity and a bit more risk. And when infection rates are high in the community, as they still are right now, Uh, we have to be careful. So I do not, for instance, support Texas's decision to stop all mask mandates and open everything up. All businesses of any type are allowed to open 100%. And the last thing, the last thing we need is Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine. Take off your mask. Forget it. It still matters. That's, I think it's premature and I think it's irresponsible. But in terms of whether you can still spread the disease, the evidence from Moderna, from uh, AstraZeneca, which has, of course, not been authorized here, uh, a little bit of evidence from Pfizer and also evidence from J&J all suggest, in my mind, that the vaccines reduce transmission probably 70-80%. So not 100%. But 70, 80%, like quite a lot, and maybe even more, maybe even more. So it's not just protecting you. Your chances of giving it to other people go way, way down once you've been vaccinated. We didn't know that two months ago. I think that is things that we are learning now. And it makes it that much more compelling that when it's people's time to get vaccinated, they should because it'll help. And, and so certainly people who get vaccinated feel a, a, a level of security that they didn't have before? Should they still be wearing masks? What should they be thinking of even though they get vaccinated? Yeah, this is, I, I would look at this in terms of risk. So you have now lowered your risk a lot, not to zero, but to a lot. But if you're a vaccinated person, and let's say you're a 70-year-old with, with cardiovascular disease, you were high risk And the vaccines are very, very good, but they're not 100%. And therefore, if I'm a 70-year-old vaccinated person, would I feel comfortable going to an indoor concert without a mask? I would not, right? Because now you're without a mask and you're indoors and you're probably with people who are not vaccinated. So 
there are still some high risk things you should be careful of. Mm-hmm. So I would say it really depends on who you are, what your risk is. What about a 35 year old who's healthy and has gotten vaccinated? You know, the right now, I think people should continue wearing masks until a large portion of the, of the country has been vaccinated. Um, if you're interacting with unvaccinated people, you should probably wear a mask because again, redu- reduction of transmission by 70, 80% is not a hundred. You could spread it to somebody who is unvaccinated. So there is a bunch of reasons why we want to continue modestly the, the public health measures and peel them back slowly and carefully. That's why I said, you know, I think things are going to be terrific and close to normal in July, but not quite in May and certainly not in March. Mm-hmm. And can, um, can a, a premature reopening in Texas or anywhere ruin uh, the, the whole national strategy? Yeah, well, one of the things we've learned over time is that these states are not isolated, right? And people travel from Texas elsewhere. And if Texas sees a big outbreak, it will cause problems in not just regionally, but nationally. And of course, there's one other short-term problem, short to medium-term problem we have to deal with, which is these variants of concern, the variants from the UK, from Brazil, South Africa. And um, one of the reasons we want to keep infection numbers low and get as many people vaccinated as possible before we start lifting public health restrictions is that we don't want these variants to have more opportunities to spread across the country. So that's the other reason why the Texas decision is really not very smart, uh, because it will lead to more of the variants really proliferating across Texas. Mm -hmm. And I want to touch upon the variants a bit, because um the coronavirus or uh, at least the spread as we know it has only been around for about a year and yet we've seen it develop in new variants especially in the last month the virus that causes covid-19 keeps changing there are a bunch of new versions and they're more contagious countries around the world seem to just be scrambling trying to keep up and stay ahead of these variants could a variant uh be so strong that it renders the vaccines ineffective? Theoretically, yes. We haven't seen that yet. Um, We've seen several variants that challenge our vaccines and make our vaccines a little less effective, but the vaccines are still very, very effective. Um, But theoretically, we could. And the biggest risk factor for seeing a variant that makes all of our vaccines useless is continuing to have large outbreaks. The reason we've had so many variants is because we've had such large outbreaks in the U.S., in Brazil, and South Africa. So the best way to prevent that nightmare scenario is to suppress the level of infection around the world and get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And um, the strategy as it is, um, it seems great for the United States, but because the level of vaccination in less wealthy countries is very, very low. The amount of surplus vaccine being bought by wealthy countries. Some estimates suggest they have pre-ordered enough to vaccinate their entire populations three times over, making it, of course, that much harder for everyone else to access them. Do you think that this uh, strategy that has um, been become known as vaccine nationalism where more than 130 countries, according to the UN, don't have a single shot of the vaccine, whereas 
10 countries have distributed 75% of all vaccines. Um, do you think this will lead to the virus roaming around for longer and therefore developing into a variant that could put the current vaccine at risk yeah. because it would yeah. be so strong? I do. And I've written about this, that I think we cannot take a nationalistic America first strategy on vaccines because it turns out this is a global pandemic and global pandemics require global solutions. And the idea that you could just vaccinate America and be done, it's the idea that I bring up that like if your whole neighborhood is on fire, the idea that you just put your own house out and then go back and live in it doesn't work like the neighborhood, the fire in the neighborhood will eventually get back to your house again. So we really need a strategy that is very global and we need to focus on getting the world vaccinated, not just uh, not just the United States. And um, on the question of um, vaccine and nationalism, um, I think that Well, for many, uh, when they hear that, oh, poor countries don't have the vaccine, they immediately think, oh, this is an ethical duty rather than a practical one. Um, like you said, it's uh, uh, the, the big outbreaks um, can can lead to these dangerous variants. Um, do you think that, do you have a feeling that in high political circles, they understand the severity of vaccine nationalism? They do, and different countries are taking different approaches to this. So there are two countries that are really spending a lot of their time and effort um, giving vaccines out to other countries even before they've vaccinated their own populations. And those two countries are Russia and China. So China and Russia are stepping in with vaccine diplomacy. In one deal, Beijing will sell coronavirus vaccines to Pakistan in exchange for testing them in the country, while Russia is pursuing global prestige It's boasting that 50 countries are interested in its COVID-19 vaccine. So what's interesting is you can see, you can think of that as those two countries are being very altruistic. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's what's going on. So we that goes from vaccine nationalism, which is hugely bad, to vaccine diplomacy, which mm -hmm. is what I think Russia and China are doing which I suppose is better, but not where we want to be. We want really to be kind of much more into vaccine solidarity and the idea that we're all in this together. And I think there's an opportunity here for the United States to step up and take a very different approach and not just uh, focus on, you know, one or two countries and giving, it giving them vaccines. It's really about making sure there's a global production of these vaccines and we have more than enough to vaccinate everybody. Right now we're on track to take probably till 2023 to vaccinate everybody in the world. It's way too long. Yeah. And we've seen all these variants in less than a year. I don't know that we want to take, you know, give the virus many more years to, to do this. So I think the to me, the very clear strategy out of the Biden administration has to be to substantially ramp up production of vaccines and get it out all over the world. What would be the best case scenario of this happening? I mean, the Biden team could make this a priority. And it's not just about money, because uh, money can't buy vaccines that don't uh, exist. And most of the vaccines have already been bought up by the rich countries. So it's a huge problem. Um, so in my mind, it's not about money. It's about production and about capability. 
And this really requires like the deal the Biden team made this week between Johnson and Johnson and Merck is a great example of the kinds of things we need to be doing. Two of the largest healthcare and pharmaceutical companies in the world that are usually competitors are working together on the vaccine. Johnson and Johnson and Merck will work together to expand the production of Johnson and Johnson's vaccine. We need to be looking at what excess capacity there is. We need to be looking at what kind of raw material is out there. Vaccines are not easy things to make. It's not like, you know, a lot of people say things like, well, what if you just we should make the intellectual property free? I don't think that's the biggest issue. That's Mohammed Yunus. He's a Nobel Peace Prize winner who launched an international campaign to make the coronavirus vaccine free of any intellectual property. Leaders from around the world have signed the pledge, agreeing that whoever creates a vaccine shares the recipe and the know-how with the rest of the world so production can happen anywhere. These vaccines are very difficult to make. They're complicated. The mRNA vaccines are very, very difficult to make. And what we should be doing is working with major manufacturers to ask the question, how do we ramp up production? What else do you need? What resources do you need? And doing that with major manufacturers all over the world. Anybody who has a track record of making vaccines, who can, should be making vaccines right now for the for the coronavirus. And what was uh, so um, uh, different about this deal with Merck and Johnson & Johnson? These are two typically like companies that are rivals. Uh, Merck has a lot of expertise in making vaccines. They were trying to develop their own COVID vaccine, which didn't work out scientifically. And so it's great. Like they're going to use their plants, their capabilities to make a rival J&J vaccine. That doesn't usually happen, right? Uh, But I think it's fabulous. And I think that's what it's unusual. And part of it is because Merck has so much capacity and capability, it will end up making a big difference. If it were some other company without a lot of vaccine experience, I wouldn't be as enthusiastic. But Merck is special. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about the Russia and China vaccine. I'm of the opinion, of course, uh, in my humble understanding of science, um, that the more vaccines there are, the better it is. Um, And I would think then that if Russia and China have an effective vaccine, it could also, they could be also included in the solidarity to give it out to other countries. However, um, I've heard, and I wanted to ask you about it, that the Western world is unsure about the, how effective these vaccines are because there isn't that much information that's made public about them. Yeah, so th- let's talk about them a bit separately. The okay. Chinese vaccine, the Sinovac, um, there are many other Chinese vaccines in production, so we'll see which ones play out. But the one that's been given out right now to a lot of countries really does not seem like a particularly good vaccine in terms of its efficacy. It looks pretty safe, um, but its efficacy is probably about 50%. But it's hard to tell. They have not fully released their data. It's not It's not very transparent. And so I am skeptical of any vaccine where I don't see the full data are not widely available. And I think the Chinese, that Sinovac vaccine, I don't know it'll end up being a really great vaccine. The Russian vaccine, Sputnik V, there they've published some data and the data looks really good, like really good. Um, Efficacy about 90%. Published in major journal, there's a lot to like about it, 
The problem is, again, the lack of transparency on the full data, all the complications. What are they? Because I can say with confidence that the data on Johnson Johnson, Moderna and Pfizer have been very closely scrutinized and very thoroughly vetted. And these are very safe vaccines. I think that's true for Sputnik V, but I don't know. Mm. I don't know because that data has not been out there. So I, I think there are countries who are going to trust them and still take the vaccine. But my general take is I'd love more vaccines. I think it'd be great if there was a Russian vaccine that was widely available um, and safe and effective. We just have to see the data and we should see much more data than we have so far on both of these vaccines. How can governments help ramp up production of vaccines? It's about identifying who can make them. It's about identifying who's got manufacturing capability, what are the resources they need. Um, a lot of companies that have, let's say, production capacity may not have the money to like retool so governments can give them money. They may have it may take them a long time to go get the raw materials. The government can help with speeding that along. There's a lot the government can do to help companies get up and running and making these vaccines. Uh, they should, and they should take a very activist stance on these things. It kind of like the vision that we have in World War II, where companies were shifting their yeah. um, operations to produce war machinery and all that. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of companies can shift to making war machinery. The number of companies that can shift to making vaccines is probably very small, um, just because it's a very specific and technical process. But mm -hmm. it's not zero. And it's I don't think we fully... Um, employed the, all of that global capacity. I think there's more global capacity out there, but they require careful government work, resources, technical expertise, things that governments can do and certainly the U.S. government can do. Mm -hmm. And I know we mentioned that um, life is going to go uh, back to a, a much more freer uh, world um, soon, but Um, there is this talk that the pandemic is not really going to go away and instead it's going to turn into an endemic. What's yep. an endemic and what is this conversation about? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, when I say the pandemic comes to an end, I don't mean that the virus goes away. The virus is going to be with us for a long time, years, if not forever. Um, And it'll be endemic, meaning there will still be people who will get, be getting infected. We'll see little outbreaks here and there. But the reason I say the pandemic is going to end is if you look at the way the last in the last year, COVID has dominated our lives. It has totally dominated our lives. It's more, it has had a bigger effect than anything else. Mm -hmm. That constant oppressive force of a infectious disease out there spreading, killing people, that's going to go away. COVID will become one of the challenges we have to manage, not the challenge that dominates everything. To me, when we can mentally make that shift, which I think is going to be in the next few months, COVID will go from being a pandemic that affects everything to an endemic disease that we have to deal with, where there are outbreaks, Or we have to vaccinate people. We have to come up with better treatments. But then it just becomes one of the problems of society. And how do you see that, say, in one year from now, what would be the daily implications of the virus still being around for some people? I mean, 
you know, one of the things I say is uh, when I say, like, we will go back to a new normal, um, a year from now, we will be in a new normal. And people say, well, will we ever go back to 2019? And the answer is we're never going to go back mm-hmm. to 2019. No, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. And pandemics change societies. Pandemics change people. Every major global pandemic has had a profound effect on society and, and society changes. And I always remind people, there's no reason to think 2019 was like the best year for humanity ever. Like we could have a new normal that's better than the old normal, right? Where we have, where we use technology more, where we connect with people virtually better. I think by next year, we'll still think about COVID occasionally. It'll still shape how we get together in large groups, especially in indoor settings. We may have more testing around and we may be doing COVID testing within a lot of part of our lives. Maybe we're doing some COVID testing in schools. We may do COVID tests before we go to a concert. I can imagine a year from now, you go to a, a music concert and you show up 10 minutes early and everybody gets a quick nasal test and mm-hmm. uh, people who are negative can go in. Um, I can imagine in some high-risk places, people occasionally wear masks. I can imagine there are communities where there's an outbreak and and the mayor comes out and says, hey, for the next two weeks, everybody needs to be wearing a mask outside mm-hmm. or indoors. Like you can imagine little things like that, but they become annoyances and they become things we get used to. They just become part of our lives. Mm-hmm. They don't dominate our lives the way this uh, pandemic has done so far. I wanted to ask something um, lastly on the people who have had COVID and are suffering consequences of it. And I, I guess as we as as we get more acquainted with the virus, we discover new things and, you know, all the time. But Do you think this is going to be, uh, we're going to see a lot of health repercussions from people who have um, been infected by it? Yeah. This is a massive issue that I think has gotten too little attention. We always focus on how many people are going to die, but there are a lot of people who got sick, who have a lot of disability coming out of this pandemic. And we don't appreciate the impact of that disability. And I think over the next six months to a year, we are really going to get a an understanding of how much disability and suffering this virus has caused. And then we're going to have to figure out how we're going to deal with it as a country. Dinja, thank you so much for being a guest on The Dive. It was so fun uh, being on. Thank you for having me. And uh, whenever you have a bit of time, please tell us so that we can have you as a guest again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Dive. If you support our mission of bringing you the world's foremost experts to explain the world right now, then please subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Dive Podcast.